0: Today on episode 27 of the California Slap Law Podcast, we'll take a look at some recent anti-slap and First Amendment cases involving President Donald Trump. Play me in, Joe. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California Slap Law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, of oh from the law firm of Morrison Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the 27th episode of the California Slap Law Podcast, a top 10 legal podcast. That's right. I received an email informing me that the California Slap Law Podcast had been named a top 10 legal podcast. I think it was one of those deals where they notify a thousand podcasts that they've been named a top 10 podcast, hoping to sell them $500 plaques and such. But I'm going to claim it anyway. My name is Aaron Morris. I'm a partner with the Southern California boutique law firm of Morris and Stone. Boutique because we have a focused practice and because we sell essential oils in the lobby. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, or if you need to fight an attorney-fee application following an anti-slap motion, please feel free to call at 714-954-0700 or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. And I've actually been tweeting on occasion. Follow me on Twitter at Aaron Morris ESQ, Aaron Morris-esque. Another great week at Morrison Stone in the after show of episode 25. And you should always stick around for the after show. I talked about an appeal I agreed to handle for free just because it presented a perfect opportunity to create precedent relating to the Automotive Repair Act, specifically, whether that act creates a private right of action. It was to be my contribution to all the hard-working mechanics out there. Well, my plan worked perfectly. I took the matter up, and the Court of Appeal agreed with me that there was no private right of action under the Automotive Repair Act, and it reversed the judgment against my client. Sing hallelujah. Except for one little problem. The Court of Appeal did not publish the opinion. But the good news is there was a groundswell of support from the legal community asking that the opinion be published, and the Court of Appeal responded by ordering that the opinion be published. Now, by the authority vested in my little old case, there is no private right of action under the Automotive Repair Act. No case had addressed that specific issue, but there were cases that had permitted claims under the Automotive Repair Act without first determining whether the Act permitted such a claim. The defense attorneys in those cases were so focused on the relative merits of the cases that they failed to step back and examine whether such a private right even existed. I'm glad I was able to clear that up. You're welcome, California. Stick around for the after show and I'll tell you about another legal precedent that I created about six years ago and how entertaining it's been to watch the consequences of that precedent. So let's get to today's cases involving Donald Trump. The first is the case of Nwanguma versus Donald Trump. I'm probably butchering that name, but just like my war story about the Automotive Repair Act, where prior defense counsel had failed to step back and consider whether a plaintiff could even sue under that act. In free speech cases, it is important that you don't get so focused on the slap aspect that you miss the overarching free speech aspect. You may recall the facts of Noanguma even if you were unaware of the case that followed. Prior to the election, Trump was holding a rally in Louisville and some protesters tried to shout him down. Trump said something pithy about the protesters and then said, "Get him out of here." Sure enough, some of the Trump supporters showed the protesters the door. The protesters then sued Trump, claiming that they had been pushed and shoved and otherwise assaulted, and that it was the fault of Trump. Nwanguma and others sued Trump and the three people they claimed had carried out his orders for battery, assault, incitement to riot, and negligence. They sued in state court, and Trump removed the action to federal court, where he moved to dismiss. The ruling by the judge in the district court was all over the place. The judge ruled that there was insufficient evidence to show that the other defendants had acted as Trump's agents, but refused to dismiss the negligence and incitement to riot claims against Trump. But the judge then revisited the issue and decided to throw out the negligence claim, stating that it was incompatible with the First Amendment. That left only the incitement to riot claim against Trump, and the district judge certified that for immediate review by the Court of Appeal. I mean, I know what what the hell I'm doing here, so uh, you guys take a look at it. The Court of Appeal analyzed the claim from two angles. First, it looked at the plain meaning of the statute. Kentucky's incitement to riot statute has five elements. One, incitement. Two, of five or more persons. Three, to engage in a public disturbance. Four, involving tumultuous and violent conduct. And five, creating grave danger of personal injury or property damage. The judge in the district court probably a never-Trumper, had seemed to go out of his way to interpret each of those five elements in a way that found against Trump. The Court of Appeal called this out, referring to the trial judge's analysis as decidedly thin. A key factual point was that when Trump said, get him out of here, he then added, don't hurt him. Incredibly, the plaintiffs had offered the later statement, don't hurt him, as proof that Trump could foresee that his words might cause the plaintiffs to be injured, and the judge had accepted that argument. The judge had ruled that an interpretation of the words, here that Trump did not want the protesters to be hurt, cannot support a motion to dismiss if they can also be interpreted in a contrary manner, here that Trump really meant that they should be dragged out but not hurt. The Court of Appeal found that to be crazy talk. In an uncharacteristically blunt comment, the Court of Appeal asked, What the hell is this? The Court of Appeal held that you must take words at face value, not assign them some implausible interpretation that would render them unlawful. The incitement to riot statute requires that the inciter created a grave danger of personal injury. If you're going to say that Trump was issuing orders to the crowd and must be held responsible for those orders, then you must look at what he ordered. He specifically ordered that the protesters not be hurt. So the court found that the elements of incitement to riot simply were not met. But it didn't stop there. The court then looked at it from a First Amendment angle. And this is good stuff because the court found that even if Trump had violated Kentucky's incitement to riot statute, his speech would still be protected. The court relied most on the Supreme Court case of Brandenburg versus Ohio, which dates back to 1969. In Brandenburg, the court recognized the principle that the constitutional guarantees of free speech and free press do not permit a court to forbid or prescribe advocacy of the use of force or of law violation except where such advocacy is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. The Brandenburg test precludes speech from being sanctioned as incitement to riot unless 1. The speech implicitly or explicitly encouraged the use of violence or lawless action. 2. The Speaker intends that his speech will result in the use of violence or lawless action. And 3. The imminent use or violence of lawless action is the likely result of his speech. The District Court had considered Brandenburg, but according to the Court of Appeal, had completely misinterpreted the holding of that case. The court cited to another case called Bible Believers. In Bible Believers, the 6th District was confronted with what it described as offensive and grossly intolerant speech of self-described Christian evangelists preaching hate and denigration of Islam to a crowd of Muslims at the Arab International Festival in Dearborn, Michigan. Bible Believers stands for the proposition that no matter how likely it is that the speech may lead to a riot, there can be no limitation on that speech unless it expressly calls for a riot. Stated another way, you can never allow a heckler's veto, as is now common on college campuses in California. The hostile reaction of the crowd does not transform protected speech into incitement. The fact that the listeners may choose to riot because of the object of the speech does not permit the state to shut down the speech. Applying Bible believers to the facts of Noan Guma versus Trump, the court found nothing in the statements of Trump that called for violence, even if it could be shown that that was the result. So here are what I consider to be this, the important takeaways from this Trump case. Since Kentucky does not have an anti-slap statute, we can't know if the decision of Trump's counsel, defense counsel was calculated or simply out of necessity. But a motion to dismiss on First Amendment grounds was a wise strategy. It may have ended up in the same place, but with a dismissal as opposed to an anti-slap motion had it been available, the anti-slap motion could have greatly complicated things. For example, a court could have concluded that Trump's get-em-out-of-here comment did not even fall under that statute, and thus the issue of whether the plaintiffs could state a claim would never have been reached. Thus, the first takeaway, at least for us here in California, is first to consider whether the anti-slap statute is the best way to go, even in a case of protected speech. The second takeaway, which is admittedly very, very narrow and may never come up in your practice, is that a state's incitement statute cannot trump, pun intended, the First Amendment. California's incitement statute, Penal Code Section 404.6, provides that one cannot engage in, quote, conduct that urges a riot. Now, I was unable to find any cases that have discussed the constitutionality of Section 404.6, but that language may be too broad. The next discussion is fun because it involves sex and intrigue, and that, of course, is the case of Stormy Daniels versus Donald Trump. It comes from a scenario I've I've written about a few times on my site, InternetDefamationBlog.com. I'm running long here, so let me give you just a quick setup. We saw the same thing happen with Bill Cosby. A woman accuses a man of sexual assault, but the assault was decades ago, and it is beyond any statute of limitations. However, the man goes on TV and says the sexual assault never occurred, so then the woman sues for defamation, claiming that the denial amounts to calling her a liar. In the case of Trump, Stormy Daniels said that after she had sex with him, some unidentified man tried to intimidate her into silence. She even provided a sketch by an artist, which blew up on the internet because it looked exactly like someone Daniels had posed with in a photo. Anyway, Trump couldn't let that stand, so he tweets, Let me see if I can do a Trump impression. A sketch a few years later about a non-existent man, a total con job, playing the fake news media for fools. But they know it. Yeah, that was terrible. Sounded more like Kennedy or something else. I don't know. So anyway, Michael Avanetti, Stormy Daniels' attorney, hears the words con job and thinks it would be a great idea to sue Trump for defamation. Here is the actual allegations. Uh, Daniels' real name is Clifford. Mr. Trump's statement falsely attacks the veracity of Miss Clifford's account of the threatening incident that took place in 2011. It effectively states that Miss Clifford falsely accused an individual of committing a crime against her when no such crime occurred. Mr. Trump's statement is false and defamatory. In making the statement, Mr. Trump used his national and international audience of millions of people to make a false factual statement to denigrate and attack Miss Clifford. Mr. Trump knew that his false, disparaging statement would be read by people around the world, as well as widely reported, and that Miss Clifford would be subject to threats of violence, economic harm, and reputational damage as a result. If you just rolled your eyes, you're in good company. The court didn't buy it either. Trump brought an anti-slap motion arguing that the words con-job are just rhetorical hyperbole. If Avenatti had the good sense to listen to the California Slap Law podcast, he would have known that a term like con-job just won't support a defamation claim for multiple reasons. If nothing else, it's just too imprecise to create a verifiably false statement of fact. Without a verifiably false statement of fact, there can be no defamation. Even if Daniels could show that she was in fact threatened by this man in the drawing, Trump can still be of the opinion that this is a con job in the sense that she is overstating her fear or is only bringing it up after all these years for publicity or wants to lend support to her other action against him or whatever. The Court of Appeal concluded it was merely rhetorical hyperbole, which which it defined as extravagant exaggeration employed for rhetorical effect, and stated that Trump's tweet displayed an incredulous tone, suggesting that the content of his tweet was not meant to be understood as a literal statement about plaintiff. Instead, Mr. Trump sought to use the language to challenge plaintiff's account of her affair and the threat that she purportedly received in 2011. As the United States Supreme Court has held, a published statement that is pointed, exaggerated, and heavily laden with emotional, rhetorical, and moral outrage cannot constitute a defamatory statement. The court granted Trump's anti-slap motion and ordered Daniels to pay Trump's attorney fees. Trump gloated about the victory by referring to Daniels as horseface, and Daniels responded that he has a tiny penis. It was all very classy. Thanks for dropping by. I start every one of these podcasts with the intention of keeping it to about 10 minutes, but I guess if brevity is the soul of wit, I'm witless. But if you've made it this far, stick around for the brief after show to hear about what has happened with some case law I created about six years ago. Until next time, have a great week and try not to slap anyone. So a client came to me about eight years ago with a breach of contract claim. She had loaned a distant family member over $200,000 and he had never paid her back. Her name was Belle. Sounds like I'm quoting from Beauty and the Beast. Anyway, her name was Belle, and his name was Feebush. I didn't want to get a judgment for just the amount owed because I think that rewards negative behavior borrow $200,000 with no intention of paying it back, and if you're ever sued, the worst that will happen is you'll have to pay that amount back after the plaintiff has had to spend money on attorney fees. Yes, if you could show that it was fraudulently uh, obtained, you could seek punitive damages, but punitive damages require that you show the net worth of the uh, defendant, and the punitive damages are based on that amount. I knew this guy wouldn't have any net worth, so that wasn't a good way to go. So instead, I added a claim for violation of Penal Code Section 496, which had to do with receiving stolen property. That section provides that you can receive treble damages and attorney fees. My theory was that by keeping the money after we demanded its return, Feebush was guilty of possessing stolen property. He'd used a false artifice to get the money from Bell, and then he refused to return it. The trial judge said he didn't like what I was doing because he felt that every breach of contract action would turn into a stolen property claim. But he couldn't deny that my legal analysis was correct, and he awarded $600,000 in damages plus all my attorney fees. Feebush appealed, and the Court of Appeal said, it didn't like what I was doing for the same reasons stated by the trial judge, but they could not deny my legal analysis, so they upheld the judgment of the trial court. Sing hallelujah! There was a concerted effort to depublish that opinion, but all the requests were denied. So, six years ago, my little case created a legal precedent on using Penal Code Section 496 in civil cases. It involves a lot more than just adding a Section 496 claim to a breach of contract claim, but look up Bell v. Feebush if you're interested in, in how I work that out. So a couple of weeks ago, Bell versus Feebush actually popped up in some unrelated research that I was doing, and that reminded me of, the, of that good old case, and I decided to take a look at what its impact has been on subsequent cases that have, have since cited to it. Well, first and foremost, all the fears that every breach of contract case would now allege receiving stolen goods did not come to pass. The courts have had no difficulty distinguishing between breach of contract claims and those that have the necessary additional elements for a receiving uh, stolen property claim. But what really shocked me is how the case had crossed over into criminal cases in several instances. Section 496 provides that one can both steal something and receive that item they stole. They can be guilty of stealing the item, or receiving the stolen item, but not both. When I argued that Feebush had stolen the money from Bell by using a false artifice, I had to convince the court that that had amounted to a theft, and that required me to use the Penal Code section's definition of theft, which is under Section 484. So now, years later, comes a case called United States versus Flores. In that case, Flores, a citizen of Mexico, was deported back to Mexico way back in 2001 for three counts of receiving stolen property, and he was told never to return. In 2015, he returned and was indicted and convicted for violation of immigration laws because his return was a separate violation of the earlier deportation order based on the three counts of receiving stolen property. He brought a motion to dismiss the indictment, arguing that Section 496 and his act of receiving stolen property did not match the federal generic definition of theft. It's all beyond me because I don't do criminal or immigration law, but from what I've learned, if you're going to deport someone for violating federal law, and they were criminally convicted under a state law, then the state statute must match the federal statute in order for it to be a violation of the federal statute. Got it? Immigration cases had previously held that California's theft statute was not a match to the federal generic theft statute because it allowed for a situation where a theft could be without the owner's consent, such as in a situation where you could steal labor by hiring someone to perform services with no intention of paying them. So Flores cried foul, saying he never should have been deported for those three counts of receiving stolen property. To untie this Gordian knot, the court relied in part on my reasoning from Bell versus Feebush. So it went full circle. I had relied on Penal Code Section 484 to define theft for purposes of Section 496, and the court relied on the reasoning I had used to then double back to interpreting Section 484 and concluded that it, could match, that it did match the federal statute. I just love the history of it all. Think about it. In about 2011, I'm drafting what would normally be a simple breach of contract case, and I decided to add a claim under Penal Code Section 496. That led to a published decision two years later, and four years after that, it was in small part responsible for a decision to remove a criminal from this country. Fun stuff. Thanks for listening, and talk to you soon.